Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. One word in the title of this talk, you, I'm sure you recognize Utah, you know, but another word is narrative, and a national narrative. So what, um, what's that all about, this national narrative? Here's the point. I'm going to speak formally on this in the second part of my remarks, but, but let me just try to set the scene for you. Here's, here's the challenge. Here's the issue. We Americans are, um, a, to use an overused word, an extraordinarily diverse group. We don't have religion in common. We don't have race in common. We don't have geography quite in common. It's a vast land. We don't have even language in common. We don't have politics in common. So what do we have in common? I think what we have in common is a common constitution and the story behind that constitution, a constitutional narrative. And without that, there's no we. Um, some of our forebearers came here yesterday. Some of them came 250 years ago with bullwhips in their hands. Others came 250 years ago in chains. Um, and to repeat, um, the thing that binds us together is a certain text, the Constitution, and a certain story behind that text. But most of us actually don't know that story. And without, actually, that common narrative, uh, we die or at least we risk dying. So let me take a step back and tell you just a little bit about the standard narratives that are out there. Um, and um, I'll tell you my slightly different narrative, and then I'll tell you where Utah fits into that story. And I think we're going to put some, some uh, maps and other images on the screen at a certain point uh, pretty soon. But here are the four or five big narratives that um, you may be familiar with. I'll, I'll ask you, you know, have you heard something like this? So the first narrative about the Constitution um, is that it's perhaps divinely ordained, um, uh, providentially uh, blessed, um, kind of handed down onto a, a chosen people by um, uh, Moses and the prophets. And, and I hope you notice that I got that word prophets in pretty early in my, <laughs> my talk here. Um, you, you take prophets seriously out here, and, and I do too. Um, and there's a lot of truth in this story. It's epitomized by people like Bancroft um, in the late 18th century. Um, and the Constitution is extraordinary. Um, here's what that narrative doesn't quite focus on as much. It doesn't quite focus on slavery. It doesn't quite focus on dispossession of native tribes, but it gets actually a lot right. It's more right than wrong, it seems to me, candidly. But it has been displaced in the 20th century. And again, if you want to read, because you guys are book readers, and I'm so proud of you um, that you are, because in general, your generation doesn't do that so much. 
Um, my own kids, three, my wife and I have three kids in college, and, and their friends are not so much book readers. But if you're interested in that standard narrative, I would say read George Bancroft, Joseph, um, read um, the work of Fisk and, and others. It's displaced in the early 20th century by a narrative, even if you don't know that this is the narrative, it's what you were taught by your teachers who were influenced by this. Um, uh, basically, the Constitution was the product of um, fat cats, um, an elite. They met behind closed doors, um, uh, headed up by a, a general who actually um, was a military figure. They went beyond their instructions. They foisted on America a relatively undemocratic document that was of, by, and for um, the 1%. They were worried about the excesses of democracy uh, um, uh, as uh, epitomized by things like Shays' Rebellion. The, the masses were getting out of control, so they wanted to create sort of an elite project that would keep the masses down an indirect election of a president, a lot of power for a, a, a court, um, and it's of, by, and for the 1%. That story, whether you know it or not, is a version of what you were taught. It was it based in part by a very famous book by a man named um, Charles Beard, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, 1913. His popularizers, people like Howard Zinn, um, who many of you um, uh, were exposed to in high school. Um, his popularizer, people like, let's say, Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting or something like that. Um, I think it's actually bunk. I think it's more wrong than right. It gets a lot of things wrong, in fact, because um, um, they put the thing to a vote. Um, and uh, it was a vote up and down the continent. Uh, and more people were allowed to vote in the Constitution than had ever been allowed to vote on anything before in human history. And in eight of the 13 states, actually, um, uh, property qualifications were eliminated or lowered compared to what they ordinarily were. It was like a jubilee year where um, special rules applied. In New York, for example, all adult female citizens got to vote on the Constitution. No race tests, no religious tests, no property qualifications, no literacy tests. That's pretty astonishing for 1787, and it's new in the world. You know what kind of property qualifications there are to be a member of the House of Representatives? None. To be a senator, none. To be president, none. So I think that story actually misses um, more than it captures, truth be told. But it's the story that you were told, and it features very prominently Madison's Federalist 10. I'll have a word or two to say about that um, in just a moment. That's what you were taught. Um, now, there's another narrative, um, and um, it's uh, uh, epitomized by the great Gordon Wood, it also talks about Federalist 10 and James Madison, um, but it's more of a, a story about making democracy, um, our self-government work. Um, democracy needs to solve, uh, be, um, uh, has problems, so it needs to actually be solved with a filtered representative system. Oh, ours is a republic, not a democracy, you've been taught. Um, this is a narrative, as I said, associated with the great Gordon Wood, with um, people like Jack Rakoff. These are very distinguished scholars in the 1960s. I think they get some things right. Um, Federalist 10 is central. How many of you were taught Federalist 10? Raise your hands. Okay. Federalist papers are a bunch of op-eds for why people should vote for the Constitution. Simple question. If you've got a good argument for the Constitution, would you wait to your 10th op-ed to make it? No one 
reads the Federalist 10 at the founding. No one, and they do read Federalist papers. I'm gonna tell you what they do read. They read the early Federalist papers, which are actually a different national narrative. Um, and um, and um, who's the father of the Constitution? I know you were taught this, because I was too. The father of the Constitution is James Madison. Yeah, right. James Madison is short. People don't pay attention to short people, I know. <laughs> When you go to the national capital, you know, is it actually called Madison, D.C.? You know, is that obelisk that's the tallest building in the world for several years, is that like the, the Madison Monument? No, there's a part of your brain that actually knows it's Washington's Constitution. Um, he is the unanimously selected presiding officer at Philadelphia. People vote for the Constitution because he vouches for it. He's the unanimously elected president, the unanimously elected re-elected um, um, re president. Um, and he has a different vision than Madison. It's actually much more national security oriented. Um, um, he's much more of a Hamilton person than a Madison person. So, so the Wood narrative is actually missing something. Now there's another narrative that's out there. I'm giving you the big picture narratives. It's the 1619 Project. And it says, oh, it's all about slavery, pro-slavery. Yeah, but if it's all about, pro and there's some truth to that, the three-fifths clause, and our early presidents are all slaveholders or northerners who accommodate slavery into Lincoln. But if that's the whole story, why is it that immediately after 17, uh, the, um, uh, independence, the northern states start abolishing slavery, not freeing slaves, but ending slavery in the world? Um, uh, and that actually is a new thing in the world, and that's associated with the American Revolution. So, so I, I think that story, actually, the 1619 Project gets some things right and some things way wrong. And then this is the immodest part. There's my narrative. Um, and uh, yeah, I want you to read books, because I only have a few minutes with you, and, I, and I, you're going to need to unlearn stuff that you learned the same way I did, because what I learned wasn't right. It's not the true narrative. My narrative, in a nutshell, is that the Constitution is way more democratic than you were taught. They put it to a vote. Um, so Beard is basically Bunk, and Zinn, and Matt Damon. Um, and it's not really about Madison and Federalist 10. Um, it's actually about national security and geography and geostrategy, that's George Washington's constitution. And unfortunately, it was more pro-slavery. Beard didn't talk about that very much, but then it became an anti-slavery constitution with Lincoln. So more pro-slavery than we were taught, um, uh, alas. So 1619 is getting some things right, but not quite everything. More democratic than we were taught, and there's nothing bad about the word democracy. It's basically the same as republic. Um, Jefferson calls this party alternatingly the Democrats, the Republicans. If democracy is a bad word, um, why does the most successful political party in the antebellum era name itself the Democratic Party? Like today, you know, if you were actually trying to brand a party, would you actually say, oh yeah, we're going to call ourselves the Nazis because that's a good trademark? Oh, let's call ourselves the Socialists because people love that in America. No, they don't, Bernie, okay? They don't, okay? So, um, So part of your brain actually knows some stuff that doesn't talk to the other part of your brain. So it's more democratic. It's unfortunately more slaveocratic. It's more about national security. America's Constitution leads to Andrew Jackson's America. 
democracy, slavery, um, national security. He kind of pulls these things together. Now, I haven't told you where Utah fits into this story. So we're going to put these maps up um, on the screen. I'm going to begin to now transition to the Utah story in just a moment. But here's why we become a we. You see, because Massachusetts has nothing in common with Georgia. Um, so they agree to unite. Why, why are Americans free? It's a pretty big question. And you say, oh, because they have a written constitution. Well, but Britain doesn't have a written constitution, and it's doing pretty well. Ukraine does. It's not doing so well. Um, oh, because they have separation of powers. Well, actually, Britain really doesn't. And again, it's, it's not that bad. And um, you say, oh, well, it's, um, it's because... Americans wanted to be free. Well, I promise you the Ukrainians do too, okay? The stories we've been told about actually um, why Americans have been free are not actually the correct stories. I'll tell you why Americans are free. It's because for the first 150 years, there's no standing army in peacetime because we create a geographically um, unified regime in which basically we only need a small um, army, very small army, and a navy that won't threaten um, liberty domestically. And here's the plan, and it's, it's George Washington's constitution. This is the good and the bad. We're gonna kick the Brits out. We're gonna kick the French out. We're gonna kick the Spanish out. We're gonna dominate the Native Americans. Manifest destiny, Monroe Doctrine, from sea to shining sea, and no one will mess with us because we're the US of A, and that works for the first 150 years. That's actually the American secret sauce. Does that make sense today? We've got a massive army. The rest of the world is democratic in a way that it wasn't before. You need to know the national narrative so you can actually um, address the challenges of your world today. Okay, so where does Utah fit into this national narrative, you see? Because here's why Washington is president, because he actually won't use the army to suppress people domestically. Here's why Ukraine is in a bad position, because they've got thugs on their border, and we don't. We have a 3,000-mile-wide moat between us and the thugs, because Canada isn't going to attack us anymore, you know, they, <laughs> because we both know who would win. Um, um, but we didn't in 1812, you see, and when this map, America, this is American 1830, we're claiming 50, the 54th parallel, 5440 or fight, you see. That's American 18, and here's the point. It's actually a defensible regime. Um, the, and here's how you can see that. Look at that, the rivers. Okay, so here's America's founding. 13 have to come together. Who's free in the world? The Brits and the Swiss, and that's it. Why? Because they've got defensible borders. When Britain was separate countries, um, uh, England and Scotland, you know, um, they're always fighting each other and Mel Gibson is coming down and whomping on the English and, and the French are getting involved. But when you create a perfect union, a unified um, regime, then you don't need an army anymore because you don't have internal borders. American 1830 actually makes a certain sense. It works. But, um, and that's what it looked like, and here's the river system. Once you get past the Appalachians, if you're gonna have Mississippi, you, everything from the Rockies to the Appalachians drains to the Mississippi, that's one system you want it intact. That's actually a workable system. Here's the thing, you don't need Utah, truthfully. You don't need Texas, I'm from California, you don't need Texas. So why, 
Why did they expand? That's actually the story I'm going to begin to tell you here. This is where Utah fits into the narrative. Um, so, um, um, and this is how the North and the South, they're going to start to come apart, and Utah's going to be part of that narrative as well. In one of the oldest and most influential history books ever written, a book all about war, the ancient Athenian Thucydides probed the root causes of the Peloponnesian War between Sparta and Athens in the 5th century BC. Sparta, he observed, was a proud land that had long seen itself as the dominant and most honored Greek city-state. It viewed with alarm and envy the rise of Athens, more academic, more cosmopolitan, more commercial, more outwardly facing, more open, more seafaring, more dynamic, more democratic society. The north is Athens, the south is basically Sparta. In notable ways, the antebellum south, or at least its political elite, self-consciously patterned itself on ancient Sparta. One of John C. Calhoun's best-known speeches described the gag rule as that, quote, that important past, our Thermopylae, um, in February of that year, um, Calhoun's fellow South Carolinian, James Henry Hammond, had also spoken in the classic Greek register, celebrating the South as a land of true and avowed aristocrats, aristoi. This was an odd boast in the heyday of Jacksonian democracy. Slavery, said Hammond, does indeed create an aristocracy, an aristocracy of talents, of virtue, of generosity and courage. Domestic slavery produces the highest toned, the purest, best organization of society that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Proud slavocrats. A typical citizen of ancient Sparta never apologized for his slave-ridden society. Rather, he gloried in it as the best of all worlds. Likewise, Hammond in 1836, this is when these maps you see are, are drawn, rhapsodized about Southern slavery, quote, I believe slavery to be the greatest of all blessings which a kind providence has bestowed upon a glorious region, unquote. Okay. Um, uh, but by the 1830s, the South was fading. Domestically, the North was rising in both industrial wealth and democratic clout. Internationally, anti-slavery was sweeping the world. A truly intelligent and far-sighted South would have made adjustments and drafted blueprints to phase out slavery gradually and with minimal disruption to its most vital interest. It would have gobbled up the financial sweeteners, the grace periods, the face-saving moral reprieves that Lincoln and his moderate but determined anti-slavery allies were willing to offer and repeatedly did offer. A smart South would have gradually Yankee-fied become over the course of many decades something like today's Atlanta, but without the burning that occurred in the 1860s. Instead, the Old South doubled down and lashed out. In the end, it lost because it deserved to lose. It had no real vision for the future. Its fighting credos were, in effect, uh, Southern rule forever, regardless of shifting demographic numbers in America, and slavery forever. Seriously? How would that work? Its legal philosophy, founded on an emphatically false premise that the Constitution authorized unilateral secession, was equally unsound. And the South badly underestimated the resolve of the North. Increasingly, its leaders openly scoffed at the very idea of human equality. Antebellum white Northerners were far from perfect. Few embraced any of the broadest possible readings of the proposition that all men are created equal. Even those who preached legal equality of various sorts often held smug views of whites' intellectual and cultural superiority over blacks. 
In this respect, even the best of Northern whites, women such as Harriet Beecher Stowe and men such as Abraham Lincoln were, if judged by 21st century norms, bigoted. I'm a huge fan of Lincoln. Um, but he's a product of his time. Still, as best epitomized by Lincoln, a large number of white Northerners, especially after Harriet Beecher Stowe's epic novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, came to hate the very idea of slavery. And an even larger number hated the slaveocracy that slavery had enabled, an anti-Republican power structure that in myriad and compounding ways threatened Northern whites' own rights, interests, and self-image. As best epitomized by Lincoln, a large number of white Northerners also hated the idea of unilateral secession, an idea that could ultimately imperil their own lives, liberty, and happiness. And in the end, a large number of white Northerners, as best epitomized by Lincoln, were willing to fight politically, legally, and militarily for what they believed. One early political and legal battle in this fight involved statehood for the land of gold. That's California. Later, political and legal battles ensued long before the cannons roared in the 1860s. So I'm going to tell you about the California Compromise of 1850, and this is where Utah comes into the story. Um, on September 1st, 1849, leading Californians gathered in the beautiful coastal town of Monterey to frame a constitution for their states to be. The Monterey Convention finished its labors in mid-October, and its proposed constitution came before the people of California in mid-November. Remember, this is 1849, right? and gold has already been discovered, of course. The document won overwhelming approval, reaping more than 12,000 yes votes, uh, compared to less than 1,000 no votes. It began as follows. We, the people of California, grateful to Almighty God, for our freedom, in order to secure its blessings, do establish this Constitution. After this obvious nod in word and deed to the Founders' Constitution, Article I opened with an obvious echo of the Founders' Declaration, Section 1, all men are by nature free and independent and have certain inalienable rights, among which are those of enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring and possessing and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. There followed many passages obviously borrowed from the Founders' Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, the press, assembly, petition, etc., etc. The Constitution also and notably lifted language directly from the Founders' Northwest Ordinance. This is going to become later our 13th Amendment. Quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, unless as a punishment for crime, shall ever be tolerated in this state. California thus, unquote, California thus sought entry to union as an emphatically free soil state. It took Congress nearly a year to grant Californians their wish. Slavocrats resisted admitting this balance-tipping free state without getting at least something in exchange. Ultimately, California came in as, a package, as part of a package of five distinct bills enacted in September 1850. One of the five bills cleanly admitted California as the Union's 31st state, and the bitter pill for some and the spoonful of sugar for others, its balance-tipping 16th free soil state. So there were 15 and 15, and now California's going to come in and tip the balance. The other four bills in this complex complex tied up various loose ends of the war and tackled other contentious issues between America's increasingly anti-slavery North and stubbornly pro-slavery South. This is where Utah's gonna come in. Although contemporaries generally dubbed this package the Compromise of 1850, 
We might also sensibly understand it, understand it as the California Compromise of 1850, like the Missouri Compromise of 1820, for the immediate imperative of California statehood did drive much of the action. Okay. Um, one of the four non-California laws in this 1850 package organized a new federal territory for a large region labeled New Mexico, encompassing modern, the modern-day state of that name and its now neighboring state of Arizona, along with pieces of present-day Colorado and Nevada. While thousands of indigenous folk, most notably Apaches and Navajo, laid claim to parts of this vast province, English-speaking American settlers had yet to thickly populate the region. No one had thus far found major veins of gold or silver here. The New Mexico Bill contains no Wilmot Proviso language prohibiting slavery in this new territory. But even the absence of a formal legal bar, the slave power, that's sort of the slaveocracy, seemed unlikely to extend its tentacles this far. King Cotton, the cotton industry, could not easily hold sway in this se sector, given the territory's thin and alkaline soil, arid climate, and dearth of fresh water. I know you know nothing about these things here. <laughs> also, the Republic of, of Mexico's pre-existing free soil regi regime, along with background principles of England's um, uh, uh, a canonical case called Somerset's case, set the legal baseline in the absence of specific positive law, like a statute. No law likely meant free law. Put differently, although the Supreme Court had yet to address the issue definitively, the natural law of freedom would be apt to govern this quadrant, unless and until displaced by some future act by the new territorial government. So until there's a, a law that specifies otherwise, it's gonna be free soil. The 1850 Act jump-started the new New Mexico government by providing for the election of a congressionally authorized territorial legislature. In that first election, the act specified that every free white male inhabitant was also a US citizen, 21 years old or older, resident at the time of the passage of this act, could vote. The law thus openly discriminated against, indeed flatly excluded from the franchise, blacks and women. 20 years later, uh, Americans would amend the U.S. Constitution to prohibit precisely this sort of race discrimination in any state or territorial election. A half century after that, America would similarly prohibit precisely this sort of sex discrimination in any election, state or federal. And Utah's gonna be really big in leading the momentum for that along with Colorado, Idaho, um, and um, Wyoming. But much would need to happen including two major wars before these advanced interpretations of the idea that all persons are created equal could come to full fruition. The 1850 New Mexico Act reflected the norms of its time. Despite Elizabeth Cady Stanton at, Susan, at Seneca Falls and, and uh, Lucretia Mott, no state in 1850 let women vote. Um, and despite Frederick Douglass's eloquent pronouncements in his notable speeches and writings, only six states let blacks vote, and only five let's, let blacks vote equally. The sixth, um, Douglass's home state of New York, required that a non-white man, such as he, had to meet a higher property qualification than did, say, a white um, neighbor. The California Constitution of 1849 was thus quite typical 
when it expressly provided that only white male citizens could vote. A substantial slice of the eastern part of Congress's new New Mexico territory, including the ancient town of Santa Fe, had, previously, um, had been previously claimed by the state of Texas, an undeniably slave state with an elaborate positive law slave code displacing Mexico's regime. By awarding this contested slice um, to a territory future state apt to reject the Texas template, which is pro-slavery, Congress gave free soilers a clear win. But this win nonetheless allowed congressional slaveocrats to save face. They could tell themselves and their constituents that at least they had beaten back the humiliating Wilmot Proviso. Okay, it's going to be a free state, but they're not requiring it to be a free state. So, so we, they're not dissing us um, in this law. Here then was a possible blueprint for regional accommodation more generally. Free soil now, and likely forever for the moralistic North and its restless farmers, combined with face-saving for the honor-obsessed South and its slaveholding aristocrats. In the North, some men's views approximated Abraham Lincoln's. Others, David Wilmot's, the Lincolns of the North, held and voiced genuine egalitarian ideas of very strength and breadth. Many of the Wilmots, by contrast, simply disliked the idea of competing against slave labor. Some Wilmots openly disliked the idea of having black neighbors, slave or free. Both Lincoln types and Wilmot types despised what they called the slave power. Southern aristocrats who pulled secret strings and engaged in political chicanery, wielded vastly disproportionate political clout because of the three-fifths clause, gagged free speech, suppressed petitions, fomented violence even unto death against free folk who dared to challenge them, and routinely twisted the law beyond recognition. Although New Mexico rejected Texas, the, the New Mexico law rejected Texas's grandiose Western land claims, Congress took some of the sting out of its state border ruling by assuming some of, some of Texas's massive debts. Here, too, was a model for future compromise, limiting slavery sweep by buying off the losing side. At a meta level, the New Mexico law was, at, was taking something valuable from Texas for a public purpose, free soil, but with acceptable just compensation. Um, almost all of New Mexico lay south, on the south side of a politically salient 36 degree, 30 minute latitude line. Um, in a proviso known as the Thomas Amendment, the Missouri Compromise of 1820 expressly barred slavery in all Louisiana land north of this line. So maybe we can put those now, the two new maps on the old one, and, and now this is where Utah begins to come into the picture. So you see that, um, uh, 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 um, uh, well, there, there, there are some, uh, uh, that line, um, uh, 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 well, actually, you can't quite see it on this one. I think you can see it better on um, this one. But the, the line that goes to across the top of modern day Oklahoma, that's this 36 degree line. And, and the Missouri Compromise says, Slavery south of that, free soil north of it. Okay, and see in this later one, this is how Utah becomes you know, part of America. Okay, um, 
So, but the 1820 Act did not, um, uh, so, but the 1820 law did not um, expressly apply to New Mexico territory. Even by its own terms, it governed only this Louisiana Compromise um, uh, land, uh, but not any of the stuff that's in, in this map, northern Mexico. See, where we are now is northern Mexico in 1830. Okay, so now finally, like, when's he going to get to Utah? Utah, you know, what about Utah? Okay, here's Utah. Another compromise law, the third in the five-state package of 1850, organized a large chunk of Mexican cession land that lay entirely north of the 36-degree, 30-minute line. The southern border of this chunk ran along the 37th parallel. So that's the southern border of your state, the 37th parallel. This tract, officially labeled the Utah Territory, encompassed all or part of present-day Utah, Nevada, Colorado, and Wyoming. And that's that big chunk you see in, in orange. That's Utah. As with New Mexico, a federally supervised election would jumpstart a new Utah government in a voting process limited to free white male adult citizens. Although thousands of aboriginal folk of various tribes, including the Utes, from which the territory got its name, of course you knew that, permanently lived in or routinely passed through this vast high desert, as yet only a tiny number of non-tribal Americans had tried to move in, and you know who those were. Actual statehood for um, the other states that had joined this union post-founding had ordinarily required a substantial population, not counting indigenous folks still living in tribes. Thus, statehood for Utah or any imaginable subdivision lay well off in the future in the eyes of most contemporary observers. Paralleling its law organizing New Mexico, Congress's Utah law avoided the language of the Wilmot Proviso, um, a language that in turn had borrowed from the Northwest Ordinance, which in turn had um, uh, borrowed from sorry, the Missouri Compromise, which in turn had built on the, the Northwest Ordinance. No slavery. That's the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. That's the Missouri Compromise north of a certain latitude line. And they didn't put it in the Utah um, statute. Um, and here's why because um, they don't want to offend the South. But they think it's going to be free soil anyway. doesn't quite turn out exactly that way, but mainly. That language of no slavery had also featured prominently in the California Constitution. It would eventually become the language of a federal abolition amendment adopted after the Civil War, the now iconic 13th Amendment banning all forms of slavery and involuntary servitude. As with the New Mexico Act, the Utah laws pointed omission of formal Wilmot Proviso, Northwest, uh, Missouri Compromise, Northwest Ordinance, California Constitution, Proto-13th Amendment language represented a morale-boosting, face-saving victory for Southern slavocrats. But like Greater New Mexico, Greater Utah seemed unpromising for slavery and for all the same reasons as soil, water, and climate. In general, Utah was just a colder and thus even less cotton-friendly New Mexico. Okay, um, here's my conclusion. What are we to make of all of this? Um, and 
if you really want the full story, oh, you're going to have to read the book, which means I'm going to have to finish writing the book. Um, and uh, um, so um, wish me luck. Um, the California Compromise debate did not unfold. Here's what they should have done. It's so much easier looking back, you know, because we have the benefit of hindsight. The California Compromise did not unfold in a global vacuum. Everyone knew that in 1833, you know, some of these maps are you know, being generated, Britain had spent enormous sums to free its Caribbean slaves immediately and with generous compensation to the slaveholders. Um, and no racial bloodbaths had ensued. Immediate slavery and um, peace. Everyone also knew that even more recently, in 1848, France had decreed an end to its Caribbean slavery. By 1850, serfdom was a thing of the past in almost all of Europe. Russia was the major holdout. Even there, serfdom would soon end in 1861. With these global portents that slavery was ending worldwide, and especially in the Atlantic Gulf region, bordering some of America's biggest slave belts, why weren't smart Southerners aiming for soft landings and big buyouts rather than insisting on dying with John C. Calhoun on slavery forever hill? Antebellum American slavery was in many ways a national system and a national sin. All regions had been complicit, whether their spokesmen took grotesque pride in that fact as did people like John C. Calhoun and John James Henry Hammond, or made excuses and mentally compartmentalized, as did the mid-career John Quincy Adams. Also, slavery had fattened the coffers of all sectors, northern cotton wigs together with southern cotton planters, northern textile, shipping, banking, and insurance industries alongside southerners with more direct personal contact with slavery. This is what Lincoln says in his second inaugural, you see. So all regions should now, the argument could have gone, help pay to repair the system, to make amends for the sin. The 1850 New Mexico Act had shown the way. Texas yielded, but the U.S. paid. Thanks to victory over Mexico, America was now land rich beyond its wildest dreams. And if you put up that, that 1850 map again, you'll just see there's still so much land here, especially compared to just the people who live in it. If white bigots could not imagine a world with free blacks living harmoniously alongside free southern whites, if free blacks would need to leave the South in gargantuan numbers, surely there was now land enough and in America itself. If hundreds of thousands of whites could flood into California in just a few recent months, why couldn't millions of free blacks flow into, say, Utah or New Mexico by gentle degrees over the next half century? This is like the alternative you know, map. Oh, Utah is like another Philadelphia or, or, or Harlem. Oh, that's an interesting thought. If gradually freed blacks preferred Sierra Leone, fine. But why not Salt Lake or Santa Fe? If mid-century American dreamers could plan and then build fantastically expensive transcontinental railroads, and you know a little about that, 
you know, with promontory point, and telegraphs, could construct stupendous canals across hundreds of miles of upstate New York, could envision vast new improvements across Panama or Nicaragua, then why weren't America's leading statesmen prior to President Lincoln publicly dreaming equally grand schemes about solving the problems of slavery and race? After all, almost everyone in America, Northern and Southern, Democrat and Whig, seemed to understand that America's interrelated slavery and race problem might destroy the Union itself, and with it, the liberty of for all, including whites. So that concludes my formal presentation. Here's my big pitch. We have to know our national story. If we don't, we die, because it's the only thing we have in common. We gotta get our facts straight. Um, I've told you a different narrative than the standard ones you've heard, that America never made a mistake, or America has always been for the plutocrats, or always been for just the white people, um, or it's, it's really all about the Federalist 10. This is a different narrative. The original Constitution was pro-democracy, pro-slavery, and all about geography and national security. It fails. Um, we call that fail of the Civil War, and in its aftermath, America experiences, thanks to Mr. Lincoln, a new birth of freedom, and Utah is a huge part of that story. So thank you for letting me share it with you. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.